We turn uh, this morning to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and let's seek the Lord's aid as we come to the Word. Father, we praise you for the gifts that you have given to those that have ministered to us and the, uh, how it touches our soul, and we give thanks for what Christ has done, and to know that any beauty, any rejoicing and exaltation in your presence today has been won for us by Christ who came and took on flesh to give life to his people. We thank you for that life and pray that you would draw to Christ those who do not know him and for those that are separated from Christ that are not aligning their lives to scripture. I pray that you help them today as we go through uh, this passage and to understand its truth and application to your people. And for we who know Christ as Savior, we rejoice in the privilege to respond to the greatest of all gifts, that though Christ was rich, he became poor for our sakes, that we might, through his poverty, become rich. We praise you that we have sung of this dawn that has come and broken the darkness the salvation that is in our Savior's name, and we, we rejoice in that. And just pray that you would aid us and to understand what is before us here this morning in this text. We need your aid. We ask for the teaching ministry of the Spirit, for conviction, for correction, for encouragement. Bring us, uh, Lord, before you in humility, and teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The so-called cancel culture has targeted Scrooge. Have you noticed this? The transformation of Ebenezer Scrooge is the central theme of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. But the enlightened artists of our day seem intent on rewriting the script. They insert sexual themes and foul language into Dickens' work, but even more significantly, they seem to be desirous of attacking the very nature of Scrooge's transformation. For example, a recent rework darkens Scrooge's sins, making them greater, not less, making him culpable of the deaths of many of his workers. Yet the script stresses that Scrooge does not need repentance. He does not need forgiveness. All he needs is to become the man that he has it in him to be. You be you, Scrooge. That'll solve everything. No repentance, no forgiveness. Well, I pray that they will at least leave Scrooge's wallet alone. Scrooge is infamously greedy, refusing to give of his wealth to help others in need, but following the visitation of three Christmas spirits, Scrooge is transformed into a willing and joyful giver. Would it not ruin the story entirely if Scrooge emerges from his house on Christmas Day with nothing more than a sense of obligation? Can you imagine him opening his wallet to give out of a sense of requirement alone, to stoically satisfy a sense of duty to society? It would ruin everything, wouldn't it? No, much of the wonder of a Christmas carol is Scrooge's sheer delight in giving. What he once saw as a distasteful practice to avoid, the transformed Scrooge finds a sheer delight, indeed a newfound source of joy that he longs to experience. He comes bursting out of his home that Christmas day wanting to give. 
And brothers and sisters, this experience of giving apart from obligation, this experience of giving as a delight, is one of God's good gifts to his people. It's not merely in a, in a novel and the transformation of a fictional character, but is really part of our story every day of our lives. In fact, the grander the cause to which we give, the greater the joy. And there's no cause grander than the exaltation and spread of God's glory and honor. For this very reason, First Chronicles pulsates with joy. You'll notice this as we work our way through it. In chapter 28, David gathers the officials to Jerusalem and he gives this last formal speech. The last speech of his reign, at least that is recorded. In chapter 28, the king reports the events that are narrated in 2 Samuel 7. We've recited some of those, read some of those here today. But that's where we find his plan to build a temple. And then God saying, not you, your son, but I will bless you with an eternal covenant. You have proposed to build my house but I will actually build your house, your dynasty. Accepting God's decision to restrict him from building that temple himself, David assembles his officials and initiates a giving project toward that temple to supply the construction materials. In the first movement of the narrative, we find that David gives liberally and appeals for partners in this project. David the king said to all the assembly, verse 1 Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man but for the Lord God. Here's the situation, he says. God has chosen Solomon to succeed me on the throne, but Solomon's young, and I'm concerned about his inexperience. Ancient Jewish historian Josephus claims that Solomon was 14 years old, at this time. He could not have been more than 20 years of age. And so he is young. He is inexperienced. And they're building a palace for the Lord. That's a strange word. If you read the Bible through a number of times, you realize that's not the way that the temple's usually spoken of. It's spoken as the house of God, but not a palace. Perhaps the word is specifically chosen here because this is the place where God himself will live where he will dwell as he objectifies his presence there above the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. Well, what's your point, David? Verse 2, here it is. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antinomy, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. He reveals that what he has done in his official role as king to amass a great quantity of building materials for the temple project. But this is not all. Not only has he done that, verse 3, notice, moreover, in addition to all of that, I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, that's the best and purest gold that they knew, 
7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver. So the, notice there, verse 3, the treasure of my own. David gave liberally from his own personal wealth. So he's using his influence as king and his resources, and he's tapping those. But then he says to them, but I'm also giving out of my private wealth toward this palace, this temple. And he says it's because of my devotion. The root of that Hebrew word translated devotion speaks of being pleased with. I find such pleasure in God that I willingly, gladly give of my wealth because of my devotion or my pleasure in God. And so he says in verse 3, I give it to the house of my God. What does that mean? I've designated gifts for use for the future construction of this temple. So King David has tapped the national reserves, he's tapped his own reserves, his own wealth, and he's given liberally. What's David saying here? It's really clear, isn't it? I'm all in. I have skin in the game here. I'm involved in this project to a great degree. And now he says at the end of verse 5, who will join me? Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Who will join me? The king raises a rallying cry to join this project, to exalt God's name, to exalt God's cause. He solicits more wealth than he himself can provide. I've given much from the kingdom, from myself. I want you to join me, and we can give more to this great cause. But notice again that he says to offer willingly. There's no obligation. There's no compulsion other than what one finds in his own heart. Consecrating himself, he uses that phrase there at the end of verse 5, consecrating himself. The Hebrew is a beautiful phrase. It's filling his hand. And consecrating himself is, is kind of the idea. But it, to, to fill the hand with gifts that come from a heart that desires to participate. So David gave abundantly knowing that he's never going to see this project. He's never going to see this temple built. But he gives willingly to see it go forward, liberally of his wealth. What was the result? Where does this lead? David giving abundantly, knowing that this is the future. We see that Israel responds, giving liberally and rejoicing greatly. Verse 6. Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. So the response to David's appeal is overwhelming. We cannot determine the exact tally of these measurements. There's all kinds of debate of exactly how much this was and which talent are they using and that. We don't need to quibble over those facts. The point is no one says that it wasn't overwhelming. It was an overwhelming response. The people willingly joined the king in giving liberally of their wealth. They wanted to do this. And what was the result? 
verse 9. Then the people rejoiced, because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. The result is joy. And that joy hinges on a single Hebrew word that is translated in this verse, given willingly and offered freely. These two phrases translate the same Hebrew word. English speakers, we got, we've got a lot of words in English. And so we like to use synonyms so that we're not repeating a word. That's fine in English. Problem is when we get to Hebrew text, there's a repetition of this word again and again and again in this passage, and we keep translating it differently so that it doesn't become boring. Well, that's the way Hebrew writers underlined the text, so to speak. This word is now the fourth time that we found this same word that speaks of offering willingly, out of no obligation, no compulsion. There's something deep in the heart that says, I must do this. I want to do this. That same word is found in verse 5, offer willingly. Verse 6, made their free will offerings. And, this, and then the, the two times here, and it will be found three more times in the narrative. Uh, if we don't get that, we're really missing what the author is saying again and again. Seven times in these few verses, they gave because they wanted to. It was willing. It was free will offering. The Hebrew word speaking of a heart that is inflamed with a desire to give. The pressure does not come from outside then. Not a sense of obligation, not a sense of pressure that we must do this, but the motivation comes from within. The pressure envisioned in this word comes from the yearning of one's heart that compels one to give willingly. This is why we find the translation freely, willingly, or free will in the narrative. Now, I, I pay taxes. I pay all my taxes. I don't cheat. And I pay those taxes out of dutiful obligation. There's nothing welling up in my heart that just yearns to pay taxes. Never felt that once. I do not grump about it. Americans, we need to recognize we enjoy mind-numbing securities in this culture. We benefit daily from unparalleled blessings of infrastructure and provisional systems all around us that we don't even recognize. But we give taxes out of obligation. God desires to move that sense of obligation from everything that we give to His cause. He says, you know what it's like to, to write out that check to the IRS to say, here's my taxes, here's, here's what I have to give, and to say, never is that how you give to me. I don't want it. I don't need it. I own everything. Do not give to my cause that way. What the chronicler has preserved for our sanctification is a look at the great joy of heart that comes as Israel gives liberally to God's glory, honor, and praise from a willing heart. We have certainly tasted 
this joy as the Lord has enabled us through the years to give liberally to the securing, the erecting, the stabilizing of the property that we now occupy. This is no temple of God. This structure, this building. We are the temple of God. We keep that straight. However, we've had the unique privilege of walking with a community of brothers and sisters through many years to see this place established as a beachhead for the gospel and a location from which to do ministry. And notice here how David thinks of it. Again, we're not comparing directly. There are parallels here. But he says in verse 2, I have provided for the house of my God. In verse 3, I have provided for the holy house. And in verse 9, I have offered freely to the Lord. So there are, they are providing building materials, yet the Holy Spirit-inspired text says that they gave those materials as gifts to the Lord. And in a related sense, the building we now occupy is wholly dedicated to Christ's cause. None of us will ever gain personally from this building. We, we will enjoy it. We will use it as a tool. When it sells, not one penny is going into any of our pockets. We will not benefit from this building. None of us lives in this building. There's certain days I have to remind myself of that. <laughs> but we do not live in this building. None of us it occupies it that way. We do not use the premises to store personal property, excepting the lost and found over here. Some of you are unwittingly storing property in this place, but you don't know it. None of us benefits from this building. This is no temple, but it is in some sense the building of God. And by His grace, in a matter of months, we hope to finish out our obligations on it by means of free will offerings flowing from hearts God has stirred for this task. And he has, through the years, uniquely. But thrilled to the core of his being with what Israel has done for the name of the Lord, David now testifies and petitions God in prayer, verses 10 through 19. Verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So there's an exaltation of God's name in response to what we see in verse 9. The willing giving of a whole heart offered freely as they rejoice greatly. And so here is the celebration. Now, isn't it interesting, David does not grow, he doesn't wax eloquent in thanking the people. These are the people who gave to this cause, but he thanks the Lord. They've given liberally, 
Yet David thanks not them, but God. He exalts God's great name as the all-powerful, everlasting, sovereign king of splendor and majesty. As verse 11 says, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. And that's the key to it. And again, a point of emphasis in this narrative that we must grasp. This is another key principle of giving. Hold on to that thought. We'll return to it soon. But look at verse 13 first. We thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. We are pretty well asleep if we don't grasp that these people are really, really happy. It just says it again and again. There is joy that fills Israel in this situation. As they give of their wealth, there's a transformed heart here that is not saying what we all naturally say to money. It's mine. I must keep it. I must have it. He says, Lord, it's all yours. And we celebrate with great thanksgiving and hope. And because that joy is God-given, it pulsates with celebration of Israel's endeavor. That's the next uh, section of this prayer, beginning at verse 10. Verse 14, But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? There's that word again, that same word. To give freely, compulsion from within. For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. So he reiterates the point of verse 11. Verse 11, the earth is yours. Verse 14, all things come from you. That's transformed talk. That's seeing things very differently than the way an unbeliever would see things. Verse 15, For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Verse 15, For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. It's yours to begin with. There's verse 16, back to verse 11, back to verse 14. Everything we have that we ever give to the Lord is His in the first place. One implication is that if our hearts move us to give to the Lord, He is the one ultimately moving us in that direction. God never says to His people, wow, thanks, I needed that. He is all-sufficient in Himself. He needs nothing, and everything that we give is His in the first place. It's like the parent giving the kids money at Christmas to buy presents for mom and dad. It's their money. And they rejoice in the gift. But it's not coming out of need. God does not need us. He just rejoices to use us to cooperate with us, to partner with Him, and thereby to increase our joy in this world and in the next. And the next world is looming. Verse 15 stresses, doesn't it? There's the stranger. That doesn't mean I, like a dangerous stranger. That means somebody who's not from around here. They are sojourners. There's a, a shadow that is passing away. In context, the implication is that we only have a short season to give to God's work. No one attending our funerals is ever going to celebrate how much we held on to. They won't. We're passing through quickly, and all that we touch and have is God's. 
Verse 17, the prayer continues. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. There's that word again, freely offered. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely. There it is again, the seventh use of that same word. Joyously to you. Willingly, not out of external compulsion, but an internal desire to give, we rejoice. We know the joy. And then petition for God's continued blessing in the third element of the prayer, beginning at verse 18. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers keep forever, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their thoughts towards you. How would you paraphrase that? How would you look at that? Like, we're really happy people here. God, you have worked uniquely to put in the hearts of your people the desire to give to this project, to this temple, to bring these materials together. Please keep putting that desire in their hearts. That he may... He, uh, verse 18... Such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people direct their hearts toward you. That's the ultimate point. Verse 19, now he turns to Solomon. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes performing all and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. With a whole heart. The Hebrew is a heart of shalom, a heart of peace, a heart of wholeness. Deeply abiding peace in God. That's what he prays for his son. And this is the whole point of any giving that we do for Christ, is to draw us closer to the Lord in faith. What good will come of a build, building a temple if the king does not lead the nation to obey the word of the Lord? That's all lost. The temple is a crucial part of the equation, but God needs no building. What he wants is for his people to honor him with a fidelity that encourages liberality but also flows in godly living at every level of his life, that he would keep your testimonies, your statutes, performing all, that he would honor your commandments. That's the end game. Obedience to God's word is the target of all kingdom-giving projects. We lay down gifts to send the gospel to the ends of the earth, the whole point is that people would come to trust Christ and honor His Word. We give locally for the very same reason. And David's saying, I have given liberally. I've involved the Israel in this. God, please bring this to the place where you want it to be. Not merely a building, but a king leading a nation that honors your commands. In that setting, that was the goal. He wants his people to honor him. The Lord wants his people to honor him with a fidelity that encourages liberality, but also flows in godly living. In verses 20 to 22, the next segment of the narrative, Israel sacrifices to God and rejoices in his presence. 
Verse 20, And David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, 1,000 lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. They'd already given. They'd already given deeply of their wealth to see this project go forward. Now they're giving more. Now they're giving in sacrifice to the Lord. And here they do benefit from it, for these are fellowship offerings. And so the people have come together at Jerusalem, and they're having a massive picnic. All these people, all these sacrifices offered, and the meat being uh, distributed. And, And in their day, eating meat was a special event. You didn't have meat every day. But for them, they're now gathering in worship in the presence of the Lord. It's a fellowship with the Lord at this meal. It's a fellowship with other believers at this meal in what God has led Israel to do for the glory of their name, and they eat with great joy. Verse 22, they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. There are a lot of happy people in this narrative. There are no obligatory, all-business, slumped-shouldered, dutiful givers fretting over the money they've just lost. There isn't one there. Nor is there any motivation but willing hearts that compel freely given gifts of sacrifice to the Lord. Years ago, when I could still jump, uh, my college basketball team played a liturgical college one Saturday night, and uh, we arrived early, and I had time to kill, and so I wandered in on that Saturday evening into the college chapel, and the priest was giving his homily, his talk. It consisted of pressuring the congregation to give. There was no reference to Scripture in any way, no reference to a glad and transformed heart. And by my estimation, everything that he said in that sermon could have worked just fine at a school fundraiser or a charity luncheon. It was, we got needs here, people. You need to respond. And that was the whole point. It was very distasteful. I wasn't expecting anything great, but I thought it might be a little more interesting than that, and I walked out and played my basketball game. Fast forward a few years, and one of our neighbors began to occasionally visit our fledgling little church at that time. This was not a born-again family, but the husband attended the sermons with some interest. And he mentioned more than once, he dutifully went to a church in the area, and he said, all they ever talk about is how we need to give more money. He said, I love this church. You don't ever mention money. And he's put, I'm, I'm, I'm not 30 years old yet. And I hear that from a neighbor who I really want to see come to Christ, and we need everybody we can possibly get in this, this church. And I thought, I'm never going to talk about money. God has continued to teach me in His Word, as well as in the outworking of our life together as an assembly. Like this assembly has had a direct influence upon my understanding of money. People challenging me, the Word of God presenting passages such as this, 
in coming to the realization that you're only half alive if you don't know the joy of giving to God's work. I don't have any problem talking about giving now. Because when you're in your 20s and pinching every penny and a family comes and says, we're really glad you don't talk about money, you can be influenced by that. But what is so much more influential is the lives that I run with here and the words of Scripture that show us that there's a transformed way of heart and it's a really happy people who know what it is. Let's just put it together here in what we've seen. First of all, true joy in giving involves a faithful example from godly leaders who do not merely tell people to give, but set the example and show the way. That's where David is. I've, I've used my influence as a king to amass a significant amount of money for this project for the Lord's name. And I've given personally of my wealth also. I've got skin in the game. Secondly, a realization that everything we have and anything we ever give is the Lord's. We do not manage our money, we invest His. Thirdly, a great king, this joy in giving involves a great king who seeks willing partners to give to his cause, believers who yearn to give so that his kingdom is advanced. Everything that we see in this passage is God saying to us, if you don't want to give, don't give. If it's not in your heart to give willingly, don't do it. But as the King of kings and Lord of lords, I look for a people who have a heart for me, and that heart shows itself in the joy of giving to my cause. He owns it all. He doesn't need any of it. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But he invites us in. Number four, a faithful body of believers who see themselves as citizens of another home, as ambassadors temporarily stationed to serve their heavenly king's interests. This eternal perspective is utterly necessary. If all that we see is the here and now, we'll strive to make the here and now as good as we can possibly make it. It just makes sense. Let's pat our nest as far as we are capable because this is it. But if there's an eternal home, if we are ambassadors, sojourners here for a, for a temporary season, that really changes the way we view everything. Faith is really at issue here. Number five, the willingness to give that dovetails with a growing obedience in every area of life. Giving as an end of itself, God's got no interest in it. In fact, giving as an end in itself is a dead end. The giving that He longs for us to know is the kind of giving that dovetails with obedience and fidelity to Him in every area of our lives. It is a faith issue. It's not a bottom line issue. And number six, a growing realization that true joy in this life is found only in fellowship with God. With God. That has to be there. We will never know this joy without new hearts. Hearts not transformed because they were spooked by Christmas spirits 
but hearts transformed by the redemption purchased for Christ's people on the cross. What we celebrate here is the one who gave everything, who gave of himself that we might be redeemed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his eternal son, who left heaven's splendor to walk this earth to pay the penalty of our sin by his death and to redeem us unto himself. It's in response to this king, this son of David, that we ever give. And it takes a transformed heart to so respond. In the 1800s, Sam Houston served, put this together, a military general, a member of the House of Representatives from two different states, a senator from two different states, well, maybe that was one, a governor of Tennessee and the governor of Texas, and I don't know what this means, I need to get into the history of it, but president of the Republic of Texas. One guy held all those positions. He also lived most of those years horribly estranged from God. It was in 1854 at the age of 61 that he responded to a sermon preached at a Baptist church in Texas by the president of what is now Baylor University, President Rufus Burleson. Burleson baptized Houston in a creek. And as Houston was walking down to the water, Burleson's in the water up to his waist. He says, uh, your, your, your watch is on your belt. You might want to take that off. And he takes it off and he hands it to somebody on the, on the shore there of the, of the creek. And then the pastor says, oh, and you, you better get your wallet out as well. Uh, and Houston was reported to have said this, I believe not, pastor. It needs baptizing too. <laughs> Isn't that great? After his baptism, Houston was congratulated by someone who remarked, well, general, all your sins have been washed away. If that be the case, Houston replied, God help the fish downstream. <laughs> I don't think they were talking theologically there, thinking of baptismal re regeneration, but what a, what a great sense of humor. But for our purposes, Houston understood that his use of money had been as sinful as his fallen heart would take it. But thereafter, he not only gave to Christ's cause, his wallet got baptized, but in that rather primitive setting, he paid for half of Pastor Burleson's salary going forward. And he did so with great joy. Well, we consider this theme in light of the great challenge that lies before us as a congregation, obviously. Just this one sermon we will leave it behind even next week when we come to a, this first stage. But the challenge that we've taken on as a church to eliminate the debt on this building, uh, next week we face the first stage in that endeavor and it will position us to know where we stand to hit the second target of Easter Sunday, April the 9th. It's a little difficult to even process the fact that we're standing here talking about this. 
it wasn't many years ago when the concept of building this building, securing this property, seemed like a dream. Just a fantasy. But, has all, but as has always been the case, this endeavor has taken baptized wallets, so to speak. Hearts transformed to think in kingdom terms. And when we think of these principles that we draw out of this text today directly, it's a transformed heart that we're talking about. It is not paying off a debt. What a wonderful thing if we could get to that place and say that that challenge has been secured. That goal has been met. That will be a wonderful thing. All of it will be for loss and for naught if it doesn't follow through in a changed heart. But I thank God, I don't believe there's any reason that we would be in the place that we are in were it not for transformed hearts and, so to speak, baptized wallets and pocketbooks. May the Lord who gave His life for us keep such purposes in our hearts as we're passing through this world and soon to meet Him in glory. May that change, that transformation mark this assembly. There won't be anybody writing novels about it. They won't be putting on plays about what we have done. Nobody will hardly notice. But we will be the richer for it as we walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we don't know what you plan for us in these days ahead. We just simply endeavor and initiate and try. And I thank you for the leaders of this church as we parallel them with the officials of Israel. And I'm so thankful for the investment that has been made on their parts to seek to to live by example and to enter into this course together as a church. I thank you for each individual who's been part of this process. But Lord, I pray far more than that we would reach this goal on April 9th or even next week. Far more than that. I pray, Lord, that you would use the process of giving to be part of the transformation that you're working in our hearts for your glory and honor. We praise you for David's giving, for Israel's giving, for the glad hearts that they enjoyed in that season. We pray that we might be able to taste that, to touch that here as we meet this particular goal. But Lord, whatever you design for us financially, we pray that you would aid us and strengthen us to draw close to you, and that we would hold on to absolutely nothing as our own. That we would realize that our very lives are in your hand, and that we would rest there. That it would transform the way we look at money, the way that we give, and every other area of our lives. Lord, this world does not just need workers, it needs transformed people of God. And I ask that Eden Baptist Church would ever be becoming that more and more in the days ahead. Deepen us, grow us, mature us, and may we rejoice in what ultimately you have done as you put those desires in our heart to advance your cause. We thank you for the budget that we've passed here recently, for the new initiatives that are reflected in that budget, for the ministry that you are allowing us to accomplish week in and week out. Lord, as David prayed, so we pray here today as a church, we are humbled We are thankful. We praise not ourselves, 
but we praise you for placing in our hands resources that we can use to participate with you in the advance of your cause. We rejoice in this. We thank you for this. And I pray that you'd stir our hearts to accomplish great things for your name, for your honor, for your glory. As we give to a project that we will never benefit financially from ourselves, but we give saying that here we long for this place to be a place where your name is praised, a beachhead from which mission endeavors can be carried forward, evangelistic endeavors can be carried forward. Help us to that end. Change and transform us, we pray. And for those who know not Christ as Savior, I pray that you would bring them to understand the gift that you have given in your eternal Son, giving his life for ours, giving us now life in his resurrection power. In this we rejoice, and for those who do not see it, we pray that you'd open their eyes. Through Christ we pray. Amen.